Excitement blows you into a world of madness. Danger engulfs you in a flood of cold fear. And terror catapults you through a galaxy of horrors. The band is Los Picadores, the album is Escape from Uranus, and the name of the song is Los Picadores vs. The Scum of Uranus. Yeah, I know you can pronounce that another way, but I'm going to call it Uranus here on Monster Kid Radio, the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook, and I really like this song. You can find it over at Los Picadores, that's L-O-S-P-E-C-A-D-O-R-E-S, .bandcamp.com, or just follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. I'm playing that song because the very beginning of it samples a bit of dialogue from the trailer, from the movie that we're talking about this week on the podcast. That movie is Wild, Wild Planet, and I'm being taken to the Gamma One Space Station by my friend, fellow podcaster and Paul Nashi aficionado, Rod Barnett. He is the man behind Bloody Pit of Rod, the Bloody Pit, and the Nashi cast. I've played the promo on the show repeatedly. I listen to the Nashi cast and his other show and I read his blog, but I've never podcast with him. This is a first for us here on Monster Kid Radio, having Rod on the show, and I think it went pretty well. You're going to have to let me know what you think. After that, we're going to talk a little bit about the contest that's running right now, courtesy of From Parts Unknown, so we get your luchador mask ready, and we'll talk a little bit about what's coming up in October. But first, like I said, that conversation about Wild Wild Planet, that's happening right after this. horror of the dead, entombed for 200 years that creeps its way back to terrorize the living. The terrifying horror of a dreaded man called Dr. Terror who, with his deck of mystic cards, could foretell destiny. Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. It's a beautiful evening. The moon is just rising. Full moon. It will soon be as bright as day. An ancient evil erupts from the grounds of Supermates Estates. The house of Frankenstein has risen from the grave. Step this way to gaze upon an exhibit absolutely unparalleled in the realms of showmanship. I have a collection of the world's most astounding horrors. Spine-chilling discussion of classic horror films featuring an all-star cast. Boris Karloff. If I had Frankenstein's records to guide me, I could give you a perfect body. Lon Chaney. Last night I suffered the tortures of the damned. 
I killed a man. John Carradine. I will come for you before the dawn. Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. There is nothing, do you hear me? Nothing more important to me than the success of this experiment. Oliver Reed. I can't, I tell you. I can't remember anything. Lawrence Olivier. You are a most uh, unusual creature, Count Raku. And Frank Langella. You do not know how many men have come against me. I am the king of my kind. Plus your favorite superheroes grapple with the world's greatest monsters. You'll never succeed with your crazy plan, Dr. Frankenstein. That's just what Batman said, Superman. And look where you are now. <laughs> A Supermates presentation coming in September and October to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. The House of Frankenstein has risen from the grave. The Long Hair of Death. Our story takes place at the end of the 15th century, a time when the powers of darkness were at their strongest, and man lived in fear of the unknown. A time when witch burning was a common occurrence, a public spectacle. The Long Hair of Death. will chill your spine and keep you gripped in your seat as you watch one of the most incredible stories of all time unfold before your eyes. You will see how the curse of a dying witch comes true as a village is ravaged by the plague and a man is hounded by his conscience and driven to commit one foul murder after another as he tries to satisfy his warped ambition. unusual, unforgettable film.
not miss the long hair of death. Listeners, I like Paul Natchy movies a lot, but I've not seen nearly as many as the guy that I have on the show this week. While we aren't going to be talking about Paul Natchy films on Monster Kid Radio for now, we are going to be talking about a movie that he recommended, and I'm talking about Rod Barnett from the Natchy cast and Bloody Pit of Rod. Welcome to Monster Kid Radio, sir. Thank you very much. It has been, I mean, we've been talking about having a podcast together Back during my zombie days. I mean, we're going to do uh, Vengeance of the Zombies, which was a Paul Nashie film. It just never happened. Finally, you're on my show, man. I am glad to be here. It's been a long time coming, but we finally made it. I mean, I've known you online uh, for years. I mean, back during the mail order zombie days, being fans of the B-movie cast, that sort of thing. Never met in person. This is the first time we've actually chatted live. Uh, yeah, and it's turning out well so far. So far, so good. Now that I started recording, actually. We've been chatting <laughs> for like half an hour to warm up, but you know. So I mentioned the Nashi cast. I want to give you an opportunity to, you know, to kind of pimp it a little bit. I want listeners to know about oh. it. I play the promo, you know, quite a bit on the show, but the Nashi cast, the online resource for Paul Nashi material. Well, at least one of them, uh, definitely the one in audio form. We occasionally like to joke that we are one of the top five Paul Nashi podcasts in the world. Uh, <laughs> We also may be the only one, but uh, we don't want to toot our own horn. Take what you can get, man. It's all <laughs> <laughs> the Paul Nashy podcast, Nashy Cast, came about. Um, well, I'd had the blog, the Bloody Pit of Rod, going for a while, and I started taking the blog more seriously, and um, was listening to a lot of podcasts, and decided, you know, I'd really like to look around, find a good podcast that kind of focuses on Paul Nashy. So I did a lot of searching discovered there weren't any and decided, well, somebody's going to have to do it. I guess it better be me. I enlisted uh, my partner in crime, Troy. And uh, because he's a, at the time he was an even bigger Paul Nashie fan than I. And uh, we've been off and running ever since. There is a bigger Paul Nashie fan than you out there. Oh, definitely. If you've never heard of some of them, it's only because um, they don't do a podcast. Oh, okay. Okay. How long has it been going? Uh, six and a half years at this point. Wow. Um, we slowed down a little bit. Once we got to uh, 55 different Paul Nashie films, we had, we were kind of getting to the point where we were covering films that Paul was only tangentially related to. He would be in one scene or a couple of scenes. He had a bit role. That really wasn't uh, scratching that Paul Nashie itch for us as well as it could have been. So uh, something that we uh, had been doing intermittently during the run of the podcast, we decided to kind of uh, up the quantity on that, which is uh, something we call Beyond Nashie, which is uh, covering other Spanish horror films from the same period of time that Paul Nashie was uh, heavily active making his monster movies. We started doing that in the second year of the show, covering some of the more interesting and obscure ones, uh, the Tombs of the Blind Dead films and a lot of the other films done by uh, director Leon Klamowski that uh, didn't involve Paul Nashie, but did involve other actors and uh, writers and people who were involved in Nashie's films. And that's, that's a real joy because there's a lot of great stuff out there. Some of it is really obscure. Some of it is not as obscure as you'd expect. 
for instance, there's some of the Spanish horror films from that period of time that have kind of fallen into public domain one way or another and end up in a lot of those big 50 film movie packs that uh, under different titles. And these are films that if you're a, a, a scrounging uh, horror movie fan who's interested in films from that period, you probably have run across at one time or another and may not even known there was Spanish. So uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. We've been concentrating on the, the beyond Nashy stuff the past year or so, primarily because, well, we've kind of covered all the Nashy stuff that we really want to cover. And, uh, well, these things are fun too. I completely understand that. <laughs> People who have been following my, I'm going to call it podcast career, and I know that sounds a little, but, you know, people who have been following me in my podcasting know that I've had a similar uh, evolution, I suppose. You know, you're covering one thing nonstop, you want to go and do something, yeah, totally makes sense, totally get it. And you recently just did the uh, Santo versus Dr. Death episode with Juan uh, from the B-Movie cast dropping in, and I mean, it's a luchador film, it's a Euro spy film, you're scratching two of my favorite itches, which sounds terrible, uh, but it's scratching two of my favorite itches right there, man, so, you know. You well, it, it's the the film came to us or came to our attention simply because uh, it stars so many different actors who worked with Paul Nashie over the years. It was made in the early seventies, which is the heyday of Nashie's uh, productivity, and it has actors like Helga Lane and several others oh, that are uh, Murta Miller who worked with Nashi multiple times and who are always a blast to watch. And the film takes place in Europe. Uh, it was filmed uh, at least partially, if not completely, in Spain. And it's uh, one of those things that kind of crossed right into our territory without it uh, without it really straining what we do in the first place. And so it was really great to be able to cover a Santo film and it actually really be a Spanish movie. It's one I need to see. It's it, We were talking before we started recording here. I have not seen this one. I, I need to get my hands on it. Uh, the podcast was great. And, you know, just congratulations on six and a half years of the show. And you've done your spinoffs as well, The Bloody Pit of Rod. And you're doing that too and just making that out. And just, I mean, congrats, man. You've been doing it. Doing it well. Well, thank you, thank you very much. The uh, yeah, the Bloody Pit podcast is. You talk about uh, getting burned out on something. I think I I started doing the Bloody Pit podcast as a separate thing, just so that I could keep myself from getting burned out. Yeah, there you go. It's you know this way I can cover whatever I want to talk about, and we can cover you know Vincent Price films or just whatever. It doesn't matter, and so that's been a lot of fun. Uh, we we do, man. We do some fun stuff on there. The 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 series of. Uh, podcast we've been doing on 70 science fiction has been a big hit and has actually kind of taken the podcast off in a, a pretty popular direction that I didn't see coming. Uh, when we did our uh, Westworld episode, suddenly uh, a lot of people started paying to the, po to the podcast that I was not expecting. And, and it's, we're still getting feedback on the Westworld episode to this day. And it came out man, back in December. Hey, Westworld is hot right now with the new series coming up and everything. Yeah. So that, that was good thinking on you, man. You were thinking ahead. Well, that's just it. I wish I could claim, <laughs> I wish I could claim that kind of intelligence, but that is not where I was going. <laughs> it was just, uh, I was talking with a buddy of mine who, uh, you know, was interested in doing some more podcasts and he threw, I, I think I threw out Westworld and he said, Oh man, I love that movie. That would be great to cover. Let's, you know, let's do our research and sit down and do it. And then suddenly it just blew up and we knew that HBO was going to be doing this uh, miniseries or series or whatever it is. 
But we were just primarily interested in how much we enjoyed Westworld Volume One or <laughs> Mach One or whatever <laughs> version one. And it's uh, well, he and I have done some great some great stuff since then. Um, or should I say we've covered some great stuff since then. You listen to the show and you tell us. But the, uh, <laughs> the Logan's Run episode has been very popular and uh, uh, Soylent Green, which is a blast. So You recently had Rondo award-winning Mark Maddox on your show to talk about James Bond. Uh, you know, you're just you're knocking it out, man. So keep up the good work. No pressure. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you're able to come on to Monster Kid Radio, and, and we're going to do something with you before we start talking about the movie, something that we do every time we have a new guest on the show. We're going to play around with the Classic Five with Rod Barnett. Ooh. Let me uh, shuffle my cards here. Oh. So any new listeners who don't know what the Classic Five is, I've got a deck of cards here. Each card has a yes or no, this or that style question about classic monster movies. There's no wrong answers. We're going to do five of these cards and just get to know Rod a little bit more. Are you ready to play the Classic Five? As long as you're sure there are no wrong answers, I am ready. There are no wrong answers. Card number one, Bert I. Gordon or Roger Corman? Uh, I'm going to have to go with Roger Corman just for sheer volume of output. There you go. There you go. Although for bigger, you know, I'm not going to go there. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Don't get me wrong. Loved some Bird Eye Gordon films, but, uh, man, Roger's still making. I have the suspicion that when we sadly learn that Mr. Corman finally passes from this mortal coil, he will still somehow be producing films. (laughs) He'll be the two-pack Shakur of (laughs) modern (laughs) B-movies. Yeah, pretty much. All right, card number two. Oh, and the last time I played this card on a guest of Monster Kid Radio, they said neither. So I'm curious to see what you say here. Billy the Kid versus Dracula or Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter? Hmm. Well, I kind of love slash hate both, but I, th- I think I'll have to go with uh, Billy the Kid, Dracula. That's, I, you know, and you know why? Hmm. It's It's not quality of the film you know, one way or the other, it's that I get more enjoyment out of it because Joe Bob Briggs did a commentary track for it. Oh, really? I don't know if I've yeah, heard that. There was a DVD release of uh, Jesse James. Uh, is, is it Jesse James meets Dracula or is it Dracula meets Jesse? I can never remember. It's Billy the Kid versus Billy the Dracula. Kid. Yeah. Yeah. There was a DVD release of it still. I mean, it shouldn't be that hard to find everybody, huh. but Joe Bob Briggs did a commentary track on the DVD for it. And uh, he brought a lot of information, and, and you know, he has fun with it as well. How can you not? And uh, it, it's just because that kind of enhanced my enjoyment of that film. I mean, yeah, you know, it's got atrocious day-for-night shooting. And it's got some of the silliest ideas I've ever seen in a movie in my life. Everybody's favorite being, let me empty my sixth gun at Dracula, and he doesn't flinch. But then I knock him in the head by throwing the gun at him. So. <laughs> sure. It's it's perfect. Right on. If, well, you know, it's John Carradine. So, <laughs> you know, that, that's what put the movie. That's what puts that movie over for me. Card number three. Which character from a classic monster movie would you like to follow on social media? Oh, honestly, I'd love it, it, he could do it in Twitter format, too. It would just be Frankenstein's monsters, different grunts, the, <laughs> occasional, the occasional uh, discovery of a food substance that he likes, and he just, you know, just like type out some hideously misspelled version of the name of it. That'd be great. I'd like that. <laughs> All right, card number four. 
Elvira or Vampira? Hmm. Elvira. Don't get me wrong, Vampira, uh, the original. That's it's it's hard to uh, to not be impressed and hard to not kind of give her due. But uh, Elvira, funny, witty, beautiful, uh, understands what she's doing on a level that. Uh, Essentially, it's 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 a, one of those moments when you realize that somebody saw something great and realized that they could build it into something better. Fair enough. That and the materials there. There's what half of one episode of a vampire out there that survived, and yeah. Elvira's all out there. Yeah. Okay. All right. Final card: Hammer Films or Amicus Productions? That's tougher me than you would think. Uh, I'll I'll have to go with Hammer. Of course, just because um, there's a there's a level of quality that's that's a notch or two or sometimes three above Amicus. But I do love Amicus stuff. Uh, even the bad Amicus films are worth seeing to one degree or another. And of course, the, the, the reason that it's a difficult choice or one that actually gave me pause was simply because I absolutely love anthology movies. And that was Amicus's horror bread and butter i love those movies i think dr terror's house of horror is easily one of the best horror films of the 60s and i i loved all the ones they produced all the way through into the 70s and i just it's those anthology movies that makes amicus for me oh man just a personal favorite there's so much fun to be had with those movies if you know it's it's the great thing about uh, an anthology story uh, an anthology film is that if you don't like the story you're watching you know give it five minutes maybe you'll like the next one right exactly it's more bang for your buck yeah you, you more 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 stories more actors more actresses just yeah and that was amicus's thing and they did it well they did it well <laughs> Well, thanks for playing the Classic Five. I'm a little disappointed that, see, I don't stack the cards, and I'm a little disappointed that a kaiju card didn't come up. <laughs> because um, years ago, on the B-Movie cast, when I called in and admitted that I hadn't seen any of the Godzilla films, Rod's response was to call me a name. What did you call me, Rod? you remember? Um, I called you a heretic. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Well, it seems so out of character for someone like you. It didn't seem, I mean, it seemed like uh, there was a point when I heard you say that, or shall I say, admit that, when I was pretty sure you were pulling our legs. Really. I mean, it just didn't seem possible. But, you know, hey, you've, I think you've worked hard to remedy that. Oh, I've more than made up. (laughs) <laughs> and, yeah. and there was, and I wanted to give you every opportunity before I said anything. I thought to myself, well, maybe he's been uh, locked in a cave or perhaps a dungeon. Perhaps he has a fear of lizards. Something was keeping <laughs> from watching Godzilla movies. I wasn't positive, but uh, no, it just turns out that uh, you, you know, it was it was a character defect. And I'm glad that you remedied it. I'm glad <laughs> well. you worked on that. And that you've become a better person over the years. Oh, uh, there you go. Yeah, no, I, I've more than made up. I've watched them all, all the camera, a whole bunch of the other little guys are little studios doing the thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of my favorite things to watch on TV now is Ultraman. You know, I, I just, you know, I'm in. Oh, well, you got I'm, me there. Uh, I have yet to dive into Ultraman beyond just a couple of episodes that I saw years ago. Hmm. I've got them sitting on my shelf. 
and just waiting for me to uh, take the plunge. But I've not uh, I've not gone Ultraman yet. It's good stuff. Well, it's kind of hit and miss in some of the series, but you know, it's just a sure volume of material. I mean, it's been going for 50 years, so there's yeah, a lot to watch and a lot of giant monsters to enjoy. So, uh, yeah, why don't you get on watching that Ultraman, you heretic? I'm just saying. <laughs> exactly. Oh. Well, I mean, you know, I've got to, I'm gearing up here. I just had to dig out my copy of uh, Godzilla versus Gigon because we'll be covering that uh, here in the next few weeks. So Nice. Did you get your Godzilla 1984 Blu-ray? Yes, yes, yes. Have you yes, watched yes. it yet? I haven't cracked mine open yet. No, no, no. I've been doing, uh, I have to say, so much of my watching time has been taken up preparing for a couple of different podcasts. And so um, having uh, turned this hobby into a, a freaking job, uh, it's become this thing where I have to set aside time just to watch the things that I want to watch that I'm not going to be podcasting about. It's It's kind of weird. Would one of those things that you've been watching lately be Wild Wild Planet? Uh, yes, it was. Well, that's that's quite the coincidence because I just watched that too, <laughs> and it was a first time viewing for me. Oh, really? You know, I hadn't seen any of the Gamma One films. Um, have you seen? Uh, so you hadn't seen any of the? Well, the- I did Green Slime. I guess that kind of sort of yeah, counts. That's yeah, kind of connected. Yeah, yeah. So I have done Green Slime. Covered that on the show a couple. It's been over a year now, I think. Anyway, the lonely, helpless Earth, the twenty-first century. The world of the future. And lurking beyond the cold, strange immensity of conquered space. Growing and spreading beyond the warped imagination of the greatest human intellect. Exploding in unspeakable horror. The Green Slime. The civilized world at war with alien form, whose slimy touch means instant, horrible death. Invaders from beyond the stars, the green slime. Robert Horton. Luciana Paluzzi. Richard Jacob. You make too many mistakes. You're not right for command. This is my command, and I'll manage it. Two men struggle for survival in the infected remains of a diseased universe. One woman searches for a last chance to save the human race from the desperate hunger of the green slime. Battle in space against faceless beings. A cosmic nightmare that sends you into the incredible, berserk world of... done that one a couple times. I love Green Slime. Of course, I can't talk about it without getting the song stuck in my head. But, you know, I love Green Slime despite that. Uh, <laughs> but these four Gamma One films, I think Vince and the gang covered it over at B Movie Cast. Rest in peace, sir. Mm-hmm. At least once, one of these films. And I was always interested, but I just never 
dove in as deeply as I would have liked. I was pleasantly surprised and kind of kicked myself a little bit because I loved this movie. Well, there's a lot there to love. When you say to someone, this is an Italian science fiction film made in the mid-60s on a limited budget, you're going to get a certain pushback from anybody because nobody really thinks that it's going to be, uh, well, worth their time to a large degree because as soon as you know it wasn't a high-budget thing, there are a certain number of things that you are going to expect to see, and yeah, you're going to see them in this movie. You're going to see guys in spacesuits obviously dangling from ropes. But the thing about the Gamma 1 films, uh, especially Wild Wild Planet, is that these movies are incredibly energetic, very colorful. They know exactly what they're doing. And the, the beauty of them is that they're fun. There's there's a there's a pop art, colorful nature to them, while being very much of their time. I mean, I don't think there's any other decade that could have produced Wild Wild Planet or the other three Gamma films. There's a mad joy to these things. And it, I mean, yeah, you kind of have to get into the spirit of these things. It's like anything else. I mean, you have to get into the spirit to enjoy a universal horror film as well. There's certain restrictions that those films have that we all know and love. And that's part of the reason we love them. And the same is true for low budget science fiction films of the uh, 60s. The four Gamma One movies produced in Italy. Remember the... <laughs> They were made on a limited budget, sure. and they made four of them back-to-back. -back. As a matter of fact, not even back-to-back. -back. They made them concurrently. They would erect the sets, and then they would film all of the scenes for all four movies that took place on those sets, and then build the next set and do the same thing. So you had actors who were working on four different movies at the same time over the course of five months, and essentially just having to get the, get the script pages be told by the director. Okay. What, what storyline are we, what, which one are we doing now? Okay. Hold on. And I guess I'm ready. Let's do this. So, <laughs> okay. Well, that, that's how they were produced. Uh, the money for the four gamma one films was put up primarily by MGM. Uh, they knew that the director, Antonio Margariti had, uh, proven himself capable of making science fiction movies on a limited budget. He had, uh, his first, uh, couple of, well, his first, a couple of his first two movie, it kind of depends on how you look at they were produced, but, uh, he had proved with a movie called Spaceman or, um, uh, darn it, I forget the other title. but uh, uh, Assignment Outer Space, I think is what it is. Assignment and, Outer Space. And I've seen the, I haven't seen the movie, but I have seen one of the original posters, and it's sweet. I love that artwork. Oh, yeah. Join in the incredible adventures of a group of astronauts and a newspaper reporter as they travel through space from Mars to Venus in Assignment Outer Space. Join in the breathtaking suspense, terrifying drama, as they attempt to intercept and destroy Alpha 2, a man-made terror out of control and about to disintegrate the Earth with its photonic rays. Watch the seeds of love blossom thousands of miles in outer space. Fly with them into the infinite void as they daringly attempt to rescue a doomed astronaut. will overtake you as they try an impossible landing on the satellite Phobos against the fantastic gravitational force of 20 Gs. Engines at 16 gammas. Engines 
the headlines of tomorrow. Don't miss this motion picture of the future. The the terrible thing that I have to tell you about Assignment Outer Space, oh, no. Spaceman, is that its most appropriate title would be Assignment Boredom because oh, no. it, it's dull, dull, dull. Now, if you watch Antonio Margariti's other science fiction movies and you uh, like what you see, it's instructive to go back and see that, but caffeinate yourself because it's really dull. I hate to say that. Uh, I'm a big fan of Antonio Margariti's films, but not all of them are gems. Uh, Past a certain point, you could count on him to make a very good film, even if it was on a subject that you didn't care that much about. But uh, his very first film, Assignment Outer Space or Spaceman, is not that great. It's just a little dull. Okay, it's a lot dull, actually. Oh, that's but too bad. It's, it's worth seeing because you get to see something that uh, came very... It came into full bloom later on, especially in the Gamma 1 movies, which is that Margariti knew how to shoot a movie on a limited budget with special effects, miniatures of, of various types, all kinds of different little explosions and uh, interesting props and mocking up settings that look very futuristic. You know, you can easily see that they found a, you know, a really good location and were able to make it look like something they wanted to look. And it, it, he's just very good at putting the frame around things to give you the illusion that he wants to give you. And he got better and better at that as he went along. I respond really well to that though. I mean, it's that guerrilla filmmaker that I thought I was going to be at one point, you know, just you find a location and you make it work and, and you know, put enough trappings in there to make it feel like a sci-fi set. Yeah. I mean, you pull back far enough. You're just at a power plant, you yeah. know, you, you pull back far enough and, and you, yeah, you know, it's not, what it's supposed to be, but that doesn't matter. I mean, that the movie's showing us this low budget sci-fi thing. I was, I was on board. I mean, I thought it was a wonderfully weird movie. It's pulpy and I love me some good pulp. I mean, it's just exciting and I, I dug it quite a bit. I, I still want to see this assignment outer space, this spaceman. I mean, it might be, you're saying it's a little dull, but I want to see where he came from. I want to know more about the director. And it's, it's a good idea to do so. As a matter of fact, I can recommend most of his movies, quite honestly. I've not quite seen all of them, uh, considering you made more than 50 movies, but there's a, a lot of fun to be had. First of all, uh, like I say, Simon Outer Space, a little, little dull, but the science fiction movie he made basically right after that is called Battle of the Worlds. And uh, it stars Claude Rains and, uh, it's a, it's a little better. You can see an improvement. You can see it's got a, a, a better story. And, you know, with Claude Rains, you've got a certain, uh, uh uh, level of acting talent that uh, kind of brings it up, up, up a notch. Battle of the Worlds! Our spaceships are decimated when the invading planet's insurmountable pull of gravity begins a shattering cosmic destruction. Only one scientific mind can stop the stellar holocaust. Your days are numbered. I prefer that you speak before the United Commission. He alone knows there are only 80 days to live, and he must convince the world of this threatening catastrophe. Can he find the formula that will save the Earth? Feel the torment of desperate passions as men and women live the last panic-filled hours of love in history's final chapter. Heroic astronauts brave the cold and lifeless void of space as they prepare for battle when the enemy's super-electronic brain launches a surprise attack of its awesome flying saucers. They're overtaking us! They're overtaking us! We must 
maneuver freely. But to win, they must land on the foreboding crust of the hostile planet and destroy forever the soulless power of its monstrous hidden brain. Starring Claude Rains in his most challenging role. Watch out, Eve! A prophetic motion picture, five years in the making. And it's really worth seeing. And so uh, right after that, for MGM, his first work with for MGM was a, a movie called The Golden Arrow, which is kind of a fantasy movie, kind of a sword and sandal thing with the tab hunter and it occasionally plays on Turner classic movies. And if you get a chance to see it, I recommend because it's very fun. Okay. Who is this mystery man of Arabia? Adventurous enough to win the love of a princess. Powerful enough to bend the fabled golden arrow to his will. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer presents a new motion picture of breathtaking adventure, spectacle, romance. The Golden Arrow. Alive with all the glamour, color, fascination of the fabulous Arabian Nights. The story of a beautiful but unwilling bride. Your illustrious groom, the invincible Prince Basora, has come to escort you to the nuptial ceremony. Of a villainous vizier. Starring Tab Hunter and lovely Rosanna Podesta, with literally a cast of thousands. You have been chosen by Allah to restore justice here. This is Allah's sign, the star of Damascus. I'm your master, Yamila. You already were, my love. No, I'm the new Sultan of Damascus. See, Princess Kidnapped. Let me go! See, deadly struggle with the fire demons. A city besieged. My army is mobilized just outside the city gate. You and Damascus are now mine. See, War of the Flying Carpets. New vistas of excitement and enchantment in Technicolor and Technorama. The thing about Antonio Margheriti is that he made movies in pretty much every genre that you can think of. I was about to say that I'm looking at his, his filmography and just, I mean, it's, it's like a highlight reel of every subgenre that came out of Italy. Exactly. The, the weird thing is then this is something that uh, Margheriti joked about all his career, which is that he seemed to be making one particular genre when everybody else was making something else. So <laughs> while everybody else was making spaghetti westerns, he was making gothic horror movies. And when he started making spaghetti westerns, everybody else was making Eurospy movies. And so when he started making Eurospy movies, everybody else was making sword and sandal movies. And it, it, it just seemed to go that way, but it seemed to work out well for his career. Well, this is fascinating. I mean, I have seen some of these films now that I'm looking at his filmography and, I didn't realize he was involved in that Andy Warhol Frankenstein, which honestly I'm not a big fan of. But um, well, that's a, there's a lot of controversy around that. I don't know if you're aware. Hmm. Uh, Andy Warhol's Dracula and Andy Warhol's Frankenstein were shot in Italy. Okay, and the director of record is someone who, if you look at everything else he ever made, none of his movies, other than those two movies, look this good. 
And so uh, Margariti was someone, he was a, he was a technician. Not only did he direct movies, he also did special effects on other people's movies. And he was kind of in high demand, even when he wasn't directing a picture of his own. And uh, he was brought in on those two movies as a special effects technician and an assistant director. And the thing is, it's always been um, kind of spoken in hushed tones or kind of alluded to and sometimes just outright said by some of the people involved in making those movies that Margariti pretty much directed. Uh, okay. And um, that has always been something that's been fiercely uh, fought against as, a, as an idea by Paul Morrissey, the director of, of credit. And it's one of those things where you go, well – None of your other movies look this polished and none of your other movies actually look this good. And maybe it's just because you had a a lot of really good technicians on this films and your other movies you didn't. But at the same time, Margariti was always there. So and he's I mean, remember, this is a guy uh, Antonio Margariti was asked to participate in creating the special effects for 2001 A Space Odyssey for Stanley Kubrick. Oh, okay. he turned he turned it down because he didn't want he didn't want to be involved in something that was going to take up that much time and he knew he'd be under the gun because of the huge budget and it just didn't seem like something he wanted to do and then years later he was offered to uh, be involved in make in making the special effects for uh, Dino De Laurentiis's King Kong film and he he said no at the same time as well so it's one of those things where when you know how well-respected he was as a technician, as a special effects man, and as someone who knew how to make movies and make them believable. Years later, he, he always chuckled and said, yeah, I probably should have worked with Kubrick on that one. He wanted me to do it, and I didn't. I decided not to. And, I, <laughs> and, and the thing is, he, uh, he also said, yeah, I probably should have done the King Kong thing because I probably would have got an Oscar out of it. But what can you say? He wanted to do what he wanted to do, and he worked on things that he felt he had control over. And when you look at his list of credits, and especially when you start watching them, you realize, man, I'm really glad he made his choice because now we've got all these movies. You've got Castle of Blood and Virgin Nuremberg and Long Hair of Death and his science fiction movies, his Euro spy movies. His, uh, I'm a big fan of his, his spaghetti westerns. When he finally started making spaghetti westerns, uh, they're they're a blast. He made uh, he made a couple of great giallos. He he did one of my favorite spaghetti westerns that can also just be called a gothic movie, called "And God Said to Cain" with Klaus Kinski, which just has to be seen to be believed. It's magnificent. He's also one of the only directors that I can name who remade his own film. So I was seeing that on here. Uh, that is a re- he remade his. Uh, oh man, I, I just had it on my screen a second ago. Which one was it? Oh, he remade Castle of Blood. Oh, there we go. It's Web of the Spider. There we go. Mm-hmm. And uh, both versions. Of, well, we did a podcast. My buddy John Hudson and I. Uh, we did a podcast where we covered both of them because it's the it's really the same script. And uh, he made it as Castle of Blood in 1963. It was released over here in 64. It's a great movie. It stars Barbara Steele. It's wonderful. As a matter of fact, it's one of the, the best of Barbara Steele's gothics, and that's saying a lot. And it's really phenomenal to see that uh, it was about eight years later, uh, producers wanted him to remake the film because they wanted it in color. Uh, at that time, gothics were still doing pretty well, but uh, selling it in black and white was difficult. So they wanted they they wanted it in color. He remade it, um, 
And uh, of course, without Barbara Steele this time around, but it's uh, the actress that they got to play her part uh, was really, really good. And she's someone who, if you if you study her career, you realize how talented and amazing she was. And his color version of it, called Web of the Spider, is exceptionally good. As a matter of fact, there are parts of it that I think are better than his first version. And uh, it's it's not often that you know of a director who remakes his own movie, but uh, Margariti was one of them. Hmm. Very cool. Well, I just think I found a number of movies I'm going to have to add to the to-watch list, you know, because I don't have enough to watch. Oh, well, um, yeah, yeah, there's but, yeah. that. Let me... Let me <laughs> Put near the top of that list if you want to delve into uh, Antonio Margheriti's films. Seven Deaths in the Cat's Eye. Uh-huh. It's a it's a gothic giallo starring Jane Birkin, and it's really amazing. Okay, that's one to really pay attention to. Right on. Well, I just got my hands on one of his spaghetti westerns, Vengeance, with Richard Harrison. So I'll be uh, I think I'll be one. watching that one here soon too. So, but Seven the Deaths in the Cat's shot Eye. Okay. Vengeance is amazing. Yeah. All right. It's this great over the over the head shot as these guys are I can't remember if it's whips or um ropes but several guys have got ropes on this guy and they're holding him and they're all circled around him and it's just this huge overhead shot as you you're watching this from above kind of the god's eye view and it's just that's how the movie starts it's wonderfully stylistic it's great stuff this is the world of the future One step beyond your wildest imagination and your strangest dreams, where science has gone berserk with grotesque experiments in the ungodly art of flesh fusion. She's being prepared. Soon she will be ready for the great moment when she and I will become one person. My flesh will absorb hers. The fusion of male and female. Living humans drained of imperfections and grafted together to form a new and terrifying race. The incredible bi-sapien race of the wild, wild planet. Where the slightest error becomes the mutilated refuse of mankind. Where success is a super being. A man-made race of automatons programmed to overpower man himself. These are the invaders from the wild, wild planet. Female form destructive units of invincible strength. Awesome ability to disappear into thin air. Only a handful of men stand in the way of these mass-produced monsters, fighting desperately to uncover the diabolic mystery of their creation, locked in the malignant mind of one man. My mind! You could never comprehend. You will never comprehend. Insane master of the wild, wild planet. Excitement blows you into a world of madness. Danger engulfs you in a flood of cold fear. 
and terror catapults you through a galaxy of horrors. This is the Wild, Wild Planet. Well, this one. Wild, Wild Planet. Yeah, they tried to bring it back to Wild, Wild Planet. So uh, on Wild, Wild Planet, uh, this was not his first sci-fi film, but it's pretty early in his career. Uh, he, he seems like an accomplished, I'll say director in terms of mixing the live action with using some of the models. And yeah, it was pretty obvious. It's, there were model shots, but you know what? They were so colorful and fun. I don't care. Uh, oh, they're obvious model oh, shots. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, even the way the ships are kind of swinging back and forth on their lines, it, it's, it's a little over the top, but it just looks cool. Mm-hmm. And, well, and I enjoyed else. that. Yeah, go ahead. The thing is, the, one of the reasons I've always felt that Marguerite was so good at combining and and got better and better over the years at mixing his miniatures with his practical locations is that he trained as an engineer. So he came up knowing how to put these things together himself and how to build things and how things were going to look, things were going to move, and things were going to kind of appear. And he got better and better with his lighting as, as time went on because, of course, you know, you build experience. And one of the great things in this is that when you see them driving around in real locations with those wild futuristic cars, and then you see the little models of them on the little miniature sets, they match. Now, the explosions and going over the cliff may look like we're watching a toy because you're watching a toy, but they always match. When you see the car, the practical, weird, futuristic cars with the big bubble tops, right? they look just like their little toy miniature version. And that's, that's something that I think is just so much fun. And it's, and it's, I, I know that uh, modern audiences, are, you know, generally sneer at this kind of thing, but it's one of those things that just puts a big smile on my face. I agree with you. I, I think they match that really well, and I was really surprised because, I mean, it's not like those cars were something you can buy off a lot somewhere. I don't want to talk about those cars because they were just awesome. Uh-huh. I mean, they were just awesome, <laughs> perfect, like nineteen sixties futuristic, you know, car with the bubble top, and I think they were three wheeled, weren't they? And and or one of them was, I don't remember, but yeah, they were just fantastic. I loved them. And to have them running around or driving on the road and actually seeing them run, man, that was awesome. I, I would love to have one of those cars. I wouldn't take it anywhere because I'd run it into something, I'm sure. But um, th- that car was sweet. Both of those cars were sweet. When I was a kid, you know, I I think that's what we thought cars were going to look like in the future. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's that, that 1960s retro futurism thing. Yes, yes, yes. Retro futurism. And it's this kind of thing that it's one of the reasons why I love looking back at uh, the various uh, modern mechanics magazines from the 40s, 50s and 60s and the popular mechanics magazines, because these were visualizing all this different stuff that we all thought was going to come our way. We all thought we were going to have flying cars. We all thought we were going to have monkey butlers and we don't have any of it. <laughs> Where's my jetpack? Come on. Exactly. <laughs> Regardless of whether that jetpack is going to burn my butt, I want it. I know, right? Get on that, Google. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, the car was great. I mean, the whole production design of this film, and we, we talked a little bit about it. You, know, you mentioned the colors and the way everything's put together. The production design here, it's great. I mean, yeah, it's of its time. You are seeing telephones being used as communication devices, and the messages are sending back and forth a little printouts. And I mean, clearly that's not even what we do now, but for them to imagine what the future would have been like in the science fiction film. I loved it. I would run around that set any day. There's a question in the classic five deck, you know, what movie location would you want to go to as a theme park? I would love to run around gamma one. 
Oh yeah, definitely. I would love to because know there's, well, first of all, there's a lot of reasons to want to rent just to see all the futuristic stuff, mm-hmm. but also it seems that Gamma One is packed with incredibly gorgeous Italian women, and I can't say no to that. So plenty of um, stuff for Rod to respond to here. And, oh yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, lots um, of uh, yeah. external stimuli. Oh uh, yeah, there is something about these Italian science fiction movies, isn't there? Um, that, that they, uh, there's a, there's a yeah. lot. Yeah. There's a lot. Yeah. Now we're a couple of guys, so of course we're going to respond to that. I thought that the lead actress did a really good job as an actress. I mean, she was a complete character, but there are some attitudes in this movie that are a little of their time. Yeah, yeah. Especially when the words are coming out of the woman's mouth, that it's a little more mm, just cringeworthy for me. There's a scene where our female lead, Lieutenant Gomez, played by Lisa, is it Gastoni? I think it's Gastoni. Yes, Gastoni. Uh, she's drunk. And she's talking about the woman's place and, you know, she's a woman. She wants to be treated like a woman. We're different than you. And it's just, it's a little cringeworthy for me. But, you know, again, it's of its time. It is cringeworthy. As a modern viewer of the film, there's no way to look at that stuff. It's a futuristic story that still maintains the the gender relationships of the 1960s. That's unfortunate. But at the same time, I'm not shocked by it. I'm more right. shocked when I see a movie from the period that seems to try to put the genders on an equal footing or even to elevate the, the females into lead roles or to uh, the roles of being, you know, the boss of some of the men or, or things like that. That's what really shocks me because it's, it just seems to have been one of those blind spots, not just in Italian cinema, but in all cinema of the time where it just was not viewed as something that was likely at all, or even, I don't even know if it crossed their minds that eventually women would run things or right. might, you know, whatever. I mean, it, the idea at the time of, uh, I don't know, someone running a country. I mean, uh, how, how far away were, were we at this time right. from Margaret Thatcher running England? I mean, it's that kind of thing that you're just kind of surprised by, but it's part and parcel of what we're watching. It's, and then it's yeah. kind of, I want to say sometimes it has a charm because it does, but while I'm feeling charmed by it, there's some cringing going on too. Right. Just a couple of weeks ago, Sven Gulli on MeTV showed the original pilot for Star Trek, the cage. And there's a scene where the captain refers to, uh, his number one, who's a female, you know, played by Major Barrett. Yeah. And, and makes a comment about, you know, women being in charge of a ship. I can't imagine that happening. And she whips her head around and he's like, oh, well, no offense. It's like, just, yeah. I mean, it's of its time and it's unfortunate, but it's one of those keystones that was there. And anyway, we could go down this, <laughs> we could go down that rabbit hole. Uh, and, and yeah. The thing is, is that Lisa Gastoni, she was a beautiful woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's quite talented. You can see that and you can look at her career and see she had a pretty steady career into the 70s before she decided to stop doing what she was doing. And then she started back up again in the mid 2000s and has had a career since then as well. She's a talented lady and she's, I mean, yeah, of course I could go on all day about how I'd love to get lost in her luscious eyes, but she's definitely good in the movie. Mm-hmm. And she's, she's actually, uh, she was in two of these and she's good in both of them. So. Does she play the same character? Yes. yes. Oh, okay. I was going to ask you if the characters carry over. Well, they do. Now, what they did is uh, the main character 
that is played by her and by Tony Russell, her co-star in the film. They're in two of them. They're the leads in two of them. And they changed and the, the main focus goes to another, another set of actors in the, uh, the third and fourth films. Okay. Now, Tony Russell is a very interesting actor. He's the, he plays, um, Mike Halstead. And uh, Tony Russell's a really interesting guy. First of all, he's he's a good actor. Mm-hmm. He's an American actor. He was born in Wisconsin, and uh, you know couldn't get uh, couldn't get starring roles in the states, and so he went over to Europe and became kind of a star over there. And uh, the great thing about uh, him, about Tony Kendall, is that he also did a lot of dubbing work over in Europe, mm-hmm. and ended up dubbing a lot of films that you're going to know. <laughs> There's a great interview with him uh, in a video watchdog from years ago where they talked to him about his entire career. And he talks a good bit about making Wild Wild Planet. And he has some great stories about the uh, you know, how when you're trying to make two different movies at exactly the same time, it really can be problematic. He was an amazing guy because he, he brought all the different dubbing communities together that were working in Italy to dub all the various films into English. Apparently there were for a long period of time, three different groups who were competing against each other. And as he put it, they were just cutting each other's throats and nobody was making any money doing these really labor intensive, time intensive jobs. And so he actually got everyone together and they became one big group so that people could actually make a living doing this instead of essentially doing it for pennies on the dollar. Oh, okay. And uh, that became one of his, uh, one of the, the things he was most famous for over there because he allowed a lot of actors to make a living. Huh. He turns up in a lot of movies over the years. He was in a, a Zorro movie the same year uh, over in Italy and uh, was in a few Eurospy films. You'll see him turn up in things like Target, Golden 7, and things like that. He does have that Eurospy look. I could see him being in a Eurospy yeah. film. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, he's in a, a great episode of Night Gallery, and he turned up in a lot of TV work later on as well, Chips and Lou Grant and things like that. But when you realize that uh, – I mean, he did, a, he did a lot of fun films in the 60s in, in Italy. But when you realize that a lot of his uh, career was built on dubbing work. I mean, you can make at that time you could make a lot of money doing that, especially if you were, you know, if you had that voice and and that is his voice you hear in the movie, and so that's what he sounds like, and he's got that voice. Well, a lot of the pretty much every movie out there uh, during this time that came out of Italy was, you know, dubbed uh, in one fashion or another, and you can tell in this one as well. There is some dubbing. The sound is just a little out of sync every once in a while, at least this transfer that I watched, it doesn't take away from the movie. In fact, it kind of adds to the charm again. It's one of those things where you just expect it with this type of film. I was going to ask if you know if it, he did his own voice, but he dubbed his own voice in this. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not sure about uh, a lot of the other actors in the movie. I will say that uh, Franco Nero definitely did not dub his own voice in this movie. Uh, he was still learning English at the time and uh, was getting it down. But uh, that's one of the stories Tony Russell tells is that, you know, this was one of uh, Franco Nero's very first films. He was like 21 or 22 when he started this and he was really working to learn English, but he hadn't gotten it down yet. And Tony Russell was talking about how every time he saw Franco on set, he had a, an English dictionary or a how to learn English book under his arm. And that's what he was doing at every Every free moment was working on his English and, uh, you know, certainly shows later on because Franco Nero's career is just astonishing. Sure. I was going to ask you, I was going to mention that, uh, Franco Nero, I mean, mainstay of so many 
incredible European films, uh, the Euro crime oh. films in particular. I mean, high crime. I mean, the, the man is, and then of course, Django. I mean, the, the spaghetti westerns. So Franco Nero. Yeah, that's the is, movie that made him a star. Yeah. Uh, a very interesting thing that's fun to know in Django. Tony Russell dubbed Franco Nero in Django. Really? Okay. I yeah. didn't know that. I, I knew that he was dubbed uh, in Django. I mean, he's dubbed in a lot of these movies. Uh-huh. Uh, but that, again, part and parcel of the Italian cinema of the time and, and the Spanish cinema of the time. And, you know, to get it out there, they would have people speak in whatever language they could while they were shooting because they were shooting fast and, you know, dub it later, deal with it later. Well, exactly. I mean, they shot. The vast majority of these movies were not shot with uh, with live sync sound. Mm-hmm. They were shot with no sound. Everything was going to be put in later. All the sound effects, all the all the voice acting, everything. And uh, of course, it made it cheaper to do that way. It made it easier, and it made it easier to control. You didn't have to worry about planes flying overhead. You didn't have to worry about noise from the crew or anything like that. You were able to just do it and go. But once you know what Franco Nero sounds like. If you go back and listen to a movie where he's dubbed, it can be a little disconcerting because you're just like, wait a minute. No, no, no. I know what he sounds like. That's he's got not a great, him. And he has yeah. a great voice. <laughs> he does. He does. Yeah. We mentioned Tony Russell. We mentioned uh, Lisa Castoni. And I, I want to mention the villain. I want to talk about Mr. Nermi, this mad scientist in outer space, basically, played by Massimo Serrato. I'm probably mispronouncing part of that. I think you've got that right. That's okay. as close as I could get anyway. There we go. There we go. I thought he was great. He is. The conversation that he has with Tony Russell at the very beginning of the movie, you could tell pretty early who was going to be the white hat, who was going to be the black hat in this movie, just the kind of way they were bantering back and forth. And the way that scene ends, it's it's locked in. Yeah, this is the guy you got to watch for. Even though you kind of knew he was the bad guy, it, it was still fun to watch what he was going to do next. I mean, you're like, oh, you know, now what's he going to you know, Just I loved watching him. I loved watching this guy because the best villains are the people who, by the time you're, you know, they're the villain and they're doing villainous things and there's no way to justify their actions. I love it when by that time we have seen what their thought process is. We know why they have gotten to the point they've gotten to. No matter how crazy their idea is, no matter what crazy thing is their driving force. I love it when the movie has given you a little bit of insight into the person and we understand, yeah, he's crazy. <laughs> yeah, he's nuts. But you know what his thought process was. We know how he got there. And that makes it more entertaining because this actor is so smooth. He's very careful in laying out his his reasons his his thoughts on how this is an improvement for the human race and about what his ideas are going to do for everyone. And yeah, of course, we're going to have to make sacrifices, and especially you, you're going to have to die. But this is going to be great. <laughs> I'd love that. And it, because at first, the first time I saw this film, and I don't know if you had this click into your head, but at first, before you realize that he's a mad scientist, I thought he was just an evil corporate businessman, someone who was kind of the guy who was going to facilitate the, the evil corporations worming its way into a, a military situation and kind of taking control of it. But that ain't it at all. He's much more evil than that. You nailed it. That's exactly how I felt about him. He's an administrator. He, he knows the science. But he's an administrator type. No, he's down in there. He's down. He's in the lab. He's pulling the strings. He's the big bad. 
And uh-huh. again, it's, it's one of those things where as the movie is continuing and you're peeling back the different layers here and you're learning more and more about the villain, by the time you're at the end of the movie, what he's doing is insane. He's going to merge himself with, with a woman and, and just become one new person, but two. And I mean, that's nuts. Oh, but, I know. It's one of the craziest mad scientist schemes I've ever seen in my life. But it makes perfect sense in his head. And because he's performed it so well, it makes perfect sense to us if we try to understand him. Yeah, there's never a point where this guy is an over-the-top character. Don't get me wrong. I love over-the-top bad guys. That's sure. one of my favorite things in the world. Get, get some crazy you know, get Jack Palance or whoever on screen chewing scenery mm-hmm. and going berserk, and I am happy. Oh, yeah. But this guy is scarier because there's nothing over-the-top about his actions or his words or how he's going about what he's doing. He's very smooth. He's very calm. Everything he says makes perfect sense to him. And if you would just see it from my perspective, you could understand why this is such a wonderful thing. So He's so committed that at the end of the movie, when things are going down and he's not succeeding, I mean, he's losing, he's uh. calling everybody else a madman. Yeah, you know, by all rights or by by all reason, he's the villain. He's the madman, but you know he's so convinced that what he's doing is the right thing, and I guess that makes the best villain. Every villain's a hero in their own story, right? So you know he, everybody else is the madman. He's not. That's Ooh. how he sees it. That's great. I mean, he was fantastic. I don't know if this movie would have been as enjoyable to me if he wasn't that presence. If he wasn't that. Good. He's, he's very good. I would have gotten lost in the set anyway. So who knows? But, <laughs> you know, this movie, it predates a couple of things. And I thought it was really interesting when I realized this came out in 66. This is pre Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I could totally see, and I, I, maybe I'm just projecting the people who did Deep Space Nine seeing this and maybe taking some cues. I, I could totally see. Uh, some other science fiction movies or TV shows taking nods from this. I don't know if it really happened. But even the science, at the very beginning, they're talking about doing organ transplants. The first successful major organ transplant didn't happen until after this movie came out. So well, That's true. But remember, uh, organ transplants were something that had been in science fiction for a while at that right. point. This is a film, and this is true of uh, 50s and 60s science fiction mm-hmm. They were taking a lot from pulp science fiction sure. and uh, all that kind of stuff, uh, brain, even brain transplants and head transplants and things of that nature. That was kind of a staple of that kind of science fiction. And so just moving it onto moving it onto the screen. Finally, that's 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 something you would expect. You, you were talking about the things that are in this movie that kind of predate other films. Remember when I told you that Stanley Kubrick wanted Antonio Margariti to work on 2001 and he turned him down. Well, the thing is Kubrick was aware of Margariti's films, which is why I wanted him to work on sure. 2001. Was there anything that struck you as visually similar between the ending of Wild Wild Planet and say, the blood gushing out of the elevators in the shining. Oh yeah. I totally could see that. Yeah. could totally yeah. see the connection there. And that's, that was a surprise as soon as that idea hit me and I read somewhere else, someone pointing out that that was probably something that Kubrick pulled from this because this is the first time anybody can ever see that. Kind, has anyone's ever seen that kind of thing on screen before? And you know, the fact that he obviously knew Margarita's films. Yeah, could he have been influenced by that? I Certainly. Why not? I, I could totally see the connection there. I mean, I'm seeing a lot of things in this that I could see turn up in other movies. You mentioned the corporation and 
Uh-huh. I mean, that immediately makes me think of the Alien films, or the, the earlier Alien films, where you've got the, the business side of things, and just, you know, they know what's going on, and they're the big bad. Well, you've got the corporation in Wild Wild Planet. They're not trusted, and they're doing all these things. And again, there's a lot in this film that if you're a fan of, of modern sci-fi, I think you're going to find to enjoy in this one. I will say that I, I'm always impressed when uh, you start talking about seeing different threads from further back in genre history that kind of uh, become bigger and bigger, become uh, not just plot threads, but kind of the, the engine that runs science fiction in the future, like aliens. It's, you know, you're definitely talking about an evil corporation there. But the thing that I think is interesting is that when you see what is obviously an evil corporation in Wild Wild Planet, I'm not sure that if this movie were written and produced in the United States, that there would have even been a thought about creating an evil corporation at all. Because you look back at science fiction from that period, and it just didn't even seem to be part of the way people thought about corporations or the way corporations might eventually go. We didn't have that kind of... uh, fear or or concern about the power of those giant business concerns that would eventually become something that could take over governments or start doing things that where they control military power and things like that. But the fact that this was written and produced with American money in Italy, that element, that plot element becomes something that, yeah, it grows larger over time. But in the 60s, I don't think an American production company would have even thought to have that as part of their story. I'm trying to think to classic sci-fi of the 60s from from the U.S. And it seemed to be either the real low, low, low budget stuff or the occasional big budget outing. And I think you're right. I can't think of anything. And, and I'm sure there's a listener right now who's like, but what about this one? And, and if there is one that we're missing, please call in or write in and let me know. But I think you're right there that there is a, a dearth or a, a, a hole in sci-fi there here in the U.S. At, at least at that point. And I, I wonder how much of that has to do with what things were like in Italy at the time, what they were dealing with at the time, and you know, and then we can really dive into the the socio political landscape of nineteen sixties Italy and what birthed this story to begin with. And I mean, it's another fascinating rabbit hole. It could just be the eternal search for a new fresh villain, true. And thinking, well, who has power? Who has money? And it's the corporations, or it's this particular business, or it's this monopoly, and that kind of grows bigger and bigger over time. But of course, it's hard to resist the fact that as part of real life, it also has grown bigger and bigger over time and therefore sure. harder to ignore and would become something that would be a natural to make the villain of your piece or at least kind of the instigator of bad things happening. <laughs> yeah. I want to talk about the music because I'm a film score guy. I love ah, my yes. film music. Uh, Angelo, Francesco, uh, Lavagnino. Um, I think sure. Lavagnino, is, Lavagnino okay. I think, is the best way to put it. I have the soundtrack on CD in my collection. There was a CD released at one point just called Science Fiction. <laughs> and it's music from the four Gamma One films mm-hmm. uh, on, on this disc. I love it. I've listened to it repeatedly, even though I haven't seen the Gamma One films. Just kind of interesting to see where they placed the music in the film. Some of it is a little modern-ish for the 60s. Not really your traditional sci-fi, but I still dug it. I mean, it's still... 
enjoyable to me. And when I look at the composer and see everything that he did, I mean, he was doing spaghetti westerns. He was doing a Zorro film here and there. He was doing all these different types of movies, you know, the macaroni combat films. I mean, the guy is phenomenal. Yeah. And he's one of those guys who seem to be able to move from genre to genre without much problem. You're right. You look at his credits and it's over 200 credits. And this man, he worked on Shakespeare films. He worked on Eurospy movies. He worked on Westerns. He worked on, my goodness, he did the score for Orson Welles' Chimes at Midnight, for goodness sake. Which is awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the man certainly was not hurting for talent. And the fact that his scores for these four movies, they don't sound like his other scores. And if you go and pick out listening to, uh, I've gotten my hands on a few of his, uh, I think it's the, the Super 7, one of his Super 7 scores for okay. one of the Eurospy films. It doesn't sound anything like this. Right. He worked in different genres. You know, you're going to do that if you're a working man who can turn this stuff out and who's, you know, who's work reaches a certain level of quality. But if you didn't tell me, if I weren't aware that he did this, the score for Mission Bloody Mary or uh, Chimes at Midnight and Wild Wild Planet, I would assume they were different people because there's no similarity to the different scores that he created. And as much as I love, I dearly love Ennio Morricone, mm-hmm. there are huge swaths of his scores for different films where you can listen to it and you know it's him. You recognize certain themes, you recognize certain uh, progressions from uh, one type of sound to another, but um, maybe it's just that I haven't listened to enough of this particular composer's music, but every time I hear something from him and I know it's him and pay attention, I go, wow, that's not like what I heard last time. <laughs> you know, and that's one thing that I do love here, too, is I, I love his Spaghetti Western work, and you mentioned Mission Bloody Mary, one of the Ken Clark Hero Spy films. I'm a Big fan of the Ken Clark Heroes by films, and the music in that's fantastic. But what I do love is uh, the four films, at least the CD that I listen to, and just kind of hearing that music together. It's all thematically kind of linked. And yeah. I think that probably when I go back and watch the other Gamma One films, I'm assuming I'm going to enjoy them, and I'm assuming part of it's going to be because there are those familiar touchstones for the entire run. Which, was that common? to do in cinema at the time. Yeah, they made three Ken Clark Eurospy films and you know they would do series of Eurospy movies, but to have four science fiction films, this is a mini franchise. These were produced originally to be TV movies. Okay. Uh, MGM put the money up. They uh, contracted Antonio Margariti to do these four films and they wanted them done on this specific budget and they kind of gave him free range to a certain degree as far as plots and things of that were concerned. But the idea was to produce four movies that would be sold to television as part of a package for television. They were suitably impressed with them. So of course they got released theatrically instead, which is impressive on its face. But this was not a common thing at the time. No, Uh, this was uh, from what I've read, although this was done a couple of other times, it was not done this successfully. In other words, uh, if they would have followed through and they would have just been TV product. Uh, and some of that you can see in a few um, Sword and Sandals. Some of the Peplum films that got produced uh, were produced that way where they were, they were being made primarily to be sold as part of a package for television. You know, they can make them on a certain budget and therefore it was going to be profitable enough to do that. And that's great. But 
these are the only ones that I'm aware of that blew the producers away to the point where they went, okay, we can, we can actually release this theatrically. So that's unique about this. If the idea of creating four movies simultaneously isn't, uh, at least, you know, it wasn't done that often. Matter of fact, it wasn't done very often sure. at all. But yeah, it is unique in that respect. I'm real eager to watch the other movies and see how they connect. And I mean, I feel like in this one, we've already got an established quote unquote world. I mean, there's even slang that we're hearing. I mean, that's pretty sophisticated world building for a low budget science fiction movie. I mean, they're calling each other helium heads. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, they're the slang, the language and the way the, the costumes work and the way they interact with each other. I mean, this is pretty sophisticated world building for this type of a movie. And I mean, I couldn't help but be impressed. They were clearly trying very hard to create a world that, uh, at least for the actors, felt believable and slightly lived in. And I think part of that just comes from the fact that they were filming four movies at a time. And so if we're going to do this very difficult thing and make this very hard on these actors, because let's understand, for the technicians, it was not that difficult. They, making those films concurrently was not that big a, a problem for the technicians, for the crew. It was really hard for the actors. And so I think a lot of that may have been grown, just may have grown out of simply wanting to make a lot of things easier for the actors. And so you, you set up certain things that are just standard. Uh, you know, you have certain ways of uh, thinking about things and talking about things. And uh, you let the actors establish relationships that are going to make it easier for these people to look like they're friends or that they've worked with each other for years because they have to be that way in four different movies. Sure. And so make it easier on the actors, make it, make it the kind of thing that it looks more lived in. It makes, mm -hmm. it makes sense to have these people be comfortable around each other and anything that they could do, considering they were making it really difficult on them in other ways. I think they probably, they probably did. I mean, by the time you get to, now, I know you haven't seen the other three in this series. And I will say that, uh, the quality varies. Um, okay. I think that war between the planets is uh, a little dull. Snow Devils is really weird, but fun. Okay. And uh, the War of the Planets, and I know, okay, look, there's Wild Wild Planet, War of the Planets, War Between the Planets, and Snow Devils. Which one of these doesn't fit? Snow Devils, that's right, yeah. Okay, okay. okay. Yeah, I was wondering, the titles I, I was aware of, I was like, that doesn't seem like it, I don't understand, but okay. <laughs> Well, the good news is all four of them are available on DVD now. So if you want to see these movies, you can. It's not as if you're going to have to cross your fingers and hope that they show up on television sometime soon. If I want to see them. Of course I want to see them. These are great. <laughs> I mean, I was loving this movie. I mean, I I would buy uh, like a play set of the Gamma 1 Space Station. I, I would like yeah. I would love to have the movie poster because it's a gorgeous movie poster. I'm I have the movie poster. Oh, do you? I have a quad. I have, uh, yeah, um, I got it years ago. I bought it at a store in Pittsburgh. Oh, geez, 15 years ago or so. Uh, I paid $15 for it. Wow. I, I don't know if listeners just heard that. That was my jaw dropping and hitting the floor. <laughs> I can't imagine finding a movie poster for this for 15 bucks. But then I don't have a movie poster shop I, I can go to easily. I do most of my poster shopping on eBay. So, of course, those prices are a little more inflated. But, wow. Well, I found this one in a, man, I can't even remember. It was some kind of bizarre secondhand shop somewhere in Pittsburgh. And when I saw it, I just 
couldn't believe it was sitting there and I couldn't believe the price. And it was essentially, I couldn't get my wallet open fast enough. And uh, I was, I was aware of the film at the time. I think I had already seen it, but I can't remember because please understand folks. I bought this film originally on laser disc. Wow. Keep that in mind. If they ever release it on Blu-ray, I'll buy it on that as well. (laughs) Oh, I bet this would look gorgeous on Blu-ray if they could remaster it. I would love to see. Well, now here's the thing. Um, three of the films have been released by Warner Archives, and they've put them out on DVD. And they look great. They look just fine. But the fact that they have those materials means that they could, if there was enough call for it, if they thought that they could make enough money off of it, they could issue those films on Blu-ray. It would take, you know, it would take more, re- more remastering. They would have to go back and, and do, uh, do another scan. But the idea of putting these things out, I mean, like I say, Warner Brothers does have those three of them. War Between the Planets was put out by a, a different company. I'm not sure exactly how that worked out. I have no idea how the rights fell okay. in certain directions. But uh, it'd be nice. One thing I would like to say, if if you are the slightest bit curious about Wild Wild Planet and you've not seen a, a second of it, take a look at the movie poster. And I want to point out to you that every crazy thing you see on that movie poster is in that movie. A lot of the movie posters from this time, they exaggerate and whatever. I mean, the point of the movie posters is to put the butts in the seats, right? So uh-huh. they're going to over-promise and under, under, uh, excuse me, over-promise, under-deliver. I need more coffee. Um, <laughs> but this poster, I mean, he's got so much packed into it, but it's all there. Guy with four arms. Check. Yep. You got a, a briefcase full of miniature human beings. Check. Yep. You got spacecraft flying through the skies, going to a different planet. Check. You got hot babes in bikinis. Check. Everything on that poster is in that film. It really is. And man, 15 bucks for that poster, man. That's insane. I got lucky. Yeah, I, yeah, you did. It was, uh, <laughs> it was, uh, he had it, uh, situated in a kind of plastic wrap thing. And it, and I still have it that way. I haven't uh, I haven't spent the money to get it framed all these years later. Although I've gotten different posters framed mm-hmm. over the years, I still haven't gotten that one framed. But what I love is that I've been able to keep that original plastic on the poster, and I can I can display it with that on it. And it's got the little fifteen dollar price tag down in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> I can show to people. Wow. Rub it in there, man. That's awesome. <laughs> you mentioned the spaceship on the poster. I love the retro spaceships in this. I mean, these look like spaceships out of a 1950s U.S. sci-fi film. We thought they were always going to look this way. Yeah. Man. We didn't realize that, you know, spacecraft were going to look different than this. This is this is the standard build, right? Yeah, you know? Sure. I love it. I love it. And they had the decency to, to shoot them correctly so the flames coming out of the back didn't float up. You know, they... <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> the way some of the lower budget sci-fi films did. Uh, I really like, I mean, it's, it's, it's getting into the weeds on the special effects, but I, I love how they even went way out of their way to when they have the, the spacecrafts taking off, mm-hmm. you have all of that smoke and crap coming out from the base and shooting out to the side. And they have the little base clearly built to funnel that smoke away from the, the craft it's just those little bits of a di- of attention to detail that were not necessary. And you certainly can see films from the fifties where that attention was not paid and you don't mind because you enjoy the film anyway, but it's just such a little smile provider for me <laughs> when they put those things in. It's, it's kind of genius. 
you know, yeah. it, it's yeah. low budget genius. You know, I don't know what the budget was on this. Uh, I mean, they had MGM money, but I don't know how much money they actually had on the film. Well, they didn't have a lot, but yeah. But, you know, they really cranked out what I'm finding to be a very enjoyable film. One of the films that I think when I do my end of the year wrap up, one of my favorite films that I discovered for the first time this year. Uh, I know I'm going to go back and rewatch it. You mentioned it being on DVD, part of the, is it Warner Brothers, did we say? Uh, Warner Archives, yeah. Okay, yeah, so they have that out there on DVD now. I know I'm going to watch it again. I streamed it from Amazon for this viewing, but I have to have it in my collection, so I'll pick it up that way. Um, Well, remember, uh, this is its uh, 50th anniversary, so this movie's 50 years old now. Wow. July 1st, 1966, man. So it's a 50-year anniversary mark for Star Trek and Wild Wild Planet, two equally entertaining... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'd watch a TV show set on Gamma 1. Why not? These kind of films are so much fun to begin with. If, if it's your cup of tea, you already know it. Mm. And here's the thing. If you think it isn't your cup of tea, give it a try because there might be enough entertainment value in it that you won't expect that you will enjoy it as well. I think that's a good way to, to cap that off. I think you're absolutely right. I'm highly recommended from, from me and the man behind the Nash cast who knows his European cinema. I mean, come on. You, you got to watch Wild Wild Planet. You got to get your hands on it. In fact, when you're done listening to the show, I challenge you, go to Amazon, order the DVD, check it out, and let me know what you think. I'd love to know other people's opinions. Oh, yeah, certainly. Uh, if you have seen this film, seriously, I'm being serious, call in, let me know what you think of this one and the other Gamma 1 films. And Rod, I think I'd like to do the other Gamma 1 films with you on the show in the future. Oh, I'd be glad to. I'd be glad to. Kind of do it the way I'm doing Planet of the Apes with Scott. I'd love to have you come back to guide me through the the, the corridors of Gamma 1. Cool. Well, I mean, the one we would do next would be uh, War of the Planets, which actually was the first of the series that I ever saw. I saw it on uh, TBS back in the early 90s. Okay. All right. And this time, we will definitely make it happen. We made it happen. We won't talk about it and then maybe like six years later finally sit down to podcast <laughs> together. <laughs> oh, I do want to say yeah. that if people are curious about Antonio Margariti's films, over on the Bloody Pit, we are doing the occasional intermittent series of podcasts about his other movies. Uh, we just covered Ark of the Sun God, which is one of his Raiders of the Lost Ark ripoffs from the early 80s. Oh, I got to see that. Ark of the Sun God is so much fun. It is energetic, fun in every way. It stars David Warbeck and uh, John Steiner, and it is so much fun. And there's, once again, just ingenious use of miniatures in it. Uh, if you want to talk about excellent miniature use, his work in the uh, 70s and 80s, he got better and better at that kind of stuff. And there. There were there are times watching Ark of the Sun God and some of his other movies from that period where you're hard pressed at times to figure out where the miniatures are until you realize, okay, they didn't crush that car or destroy that train. That would be too much money. (laughs) (laughs) Although uh, one of the truly fun things is uh, Antonio Margariti made the greatest film ever made, which is you're the hunter from the future. (laughs) <laughs> I, of course, say that with a uh, tongue firmly in cheek, but I do love your. There's a DVD of it out there now, too. I can't remember who put it out, but there's a DVD of your The Hunter from the Future out there. And one of the neatest things about it is that now that it's in nice widescreen digital, you can spot when instead of Reb Brown, there's an action figure. 
because it's all miniatures. And until you realized you were looking at an action figure, you didn't realize it. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Um, I don't think I've seen your. I probably oh, wow. should, but Reb oh, Brown is the star of it. Reb Brown is the star of it. Captain America. Yes. Well, well, 1979's Captain America. <laughs> yes. Yes. Let's make sure you put that caveat <laughs> in the place there. Let's not. Let's not give people mental whiplash. Yes. But wow. yes, yes, Reb Brown. Oh well, your is well worth talking about because your um, the Hunter from the Future was a four part TV miniseries that got chopped down into a theatrical film for for the United States. So out there, if you look in the proper places, which it, which unfortunately would be Italy, is a three and a half hour version of your the Hunter from the Future. Wow. You've uh, got it right. Um, squirreled away someplace, yeah, with <laughs> subtitles. I'm sure you do. I, I know the oh, poster. Great. I just haven't seen the films. Oh, it's great! It's great. The fact that they cut so many monster battles out of that movie to shorten it down will make you cry. Well, as if I don't have enough to watch. I'll put that <laughs> on the list. As if and we then, don't all yeah. have so much. And to the watch. other day, you mentioned on Facebook a documentary that I'm going to watch after I've watched more of the Game of One films: The Outsider, the Cinema of Antonio Margheriti. Is that worth checking out? It's a, it's a great documentary. It's about an hour long, okay. and it was made by uh, Antonio's son, Eduardo. Okay. Um, that's one of the things that you'll notice uh, in a, with a lot of Italian uh, cinema, with a lot of the directors especially, is that they brought their sons and their daughters along in the field. And uh, essentially, they were apprentices who worked with their, their fathers on films. And Eduardo was the same way. He was a special effects technician, a second unit director on a lot of his a lot of his father's films starting in the eighties. And, um, he made this documentary about his father and you can stream it on Amazon. That's the only place I know of it right now. There's not been a DVD release of it over here or anything like that. Uh, but it's a really great documentary. Uh, they talk, there's a lot of interview footage with, uh, Margariti who un- unfortunately several years ago did pass away, but there's a lot of interview footage with uh, a lot of the actors he worked with, uh, including, you know, Franco Nero. And, and believe me, you'll recognize if you're a Euro trash fan, you will recognize all these actors. And uh, it's just really phenomenal because the, the neat thing about the, the, you'll learn a lot of neat things. But the neatest thing to me is that apparently everybody loved Antonio Margariti. <laughs> This is a man who made multiple films with Klaus Kinski and uh, got along with him really well. Oh, good. Yeah, which is apparently almost impossible. So. <laughs> right. On. Well, I'm going to hold off until I've watched more of the Gamble One films because I don't want them to have, have them be spoiled for me. But I will watch that documentary down the line as well. Next will be War of the Planets, and we'll have you back on to talk about that. In the meantime, if I want to hear from you, I know where to find you. Nashie Cast. What's the website address? Uh, the the blog is the bloody pit of rod and uh you can reach the nashi cast from there you can play it right off the page and you can also play episodes of the bloody pit podcast there as well pit of rod.blogspot.com is that right that's me all right i'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes and i'll keep playing the nashi cast promo keep that in rotation thank you uh, we were talking before we started recording about some plans you've got coming up for the nashi cast i'm excited for you to revisit a particular movie might just leave it at that to kind of tease the <laughs> listeners but i'm excited because it's one of the better ones yes it is so we'll be doing that rod we'll have to have you back down the line thanks for doing this i appreciate it no man thank you nashicast.blogspot.com pitofrod.blogspot.com or rodbarnett68.podbean.com you know what not or 
And check out all three of those links for more Rod Barnett. He loves his Paul Nashie, and he loves a lot of other things as well. So go check that out. And I meant it, and I think Rod's on board. We are going to have him back on the show. We are going to talk about the other three Gamma One movies. That'll happen. So stay tuned. And Rod, thanks for being part of the show this week. I appreciate it, sir. The artist, the poet, the figure model who loves to show it. You suppose he could be physically attracted to her? No, man, he ain't the type. He don't get enough vitamin E. All these are beat. All these you'll meet in a bucket of blood. Let us make the scene. Crazy. Come, enjoy yourself. <laughs> Where the hilarious enjoy the horrifying. In a bucket of blood. Now you're gonna shoot me, don't shoot! Come to the land of living dreams, where realists dream of the unreal. Walter, you've done something to me. Something deep down inside of my prana. Oh, Walter, I want to be with you. You're creative. Beatniks at their bawdiest. The creative urge at its most primitive. I'm deeply moved. And I shall compose a poem. Love is art. Art is love. It's the weirdest and the wildest. I don't want to make statues anymore. I want to get married. To you. C-3PO, Loki, Mace Windu, Dr. Bruce Banner, Captain Rex, Venom, Princess Leia, Jean Grey, Darth Maul, Nick Fury, Grand Moff Tarkin, Captain America, Lando Calrissian, Cyclops. What do all these characters have in common? Well, two of them were played by Samuel L. Jackson. A couple of them were played by Hammer Films veterans Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Come on, guys. You know this. Well, of course we do, Jessica. Just like Mickey Mouse and Captain Jack Sparrow, they're all now Disney characters. Hello, I'm Tracy of the Disney Indiana Podcast, and my co-host Scott and I enjoy talking about all aspects of the House of Mouse, and that includes their newest properties, Marvel and LucasArts. We also talk about Disney resorts, the cruise line, theme parks, and whatever else Mickey has to offer. Which includes movies, Imagineering, video games, and collectibles. You'll never know what we'll decide to talk about. So check us out at www.disneyindiana.com or do a search for the Disney Indiana Podcast on iTunes. Because now we've got a lot more to talk about. And don't forget about those other quote-unquote Disney characters like, well, Sully. Fozzie Bear. Buzz Lightyear. Link Hogthrob. Doug. Janice. Merida. Pepe. Bruce. Ralph the Dog. Wally. The Disney Indiana Podcast. Even after five years, we're still miles away from the nearest Main Street, USA. We're not listed on the map, but you can join us at www.disneyindiana.com.
this all about? What's everybody running from? It's the end of everything. What do you mean? I'm not arguing theory, General. I'm here to ask you, to beg you, to save your own world. It, 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 the, the most, most fascinating, fascinating mastermind, mastermind man can conceive. A monster that can control all sources of the Earth's power. Able to pull man-made spaceships from their orbits. Making of those it chooses slaves. Of this woman, a willing handmaiden. Of the chief of police, a cold-blooded killer. Well, I've known you for five years. You just killed a man in cold blood. Why? I'll have to place you under protective custody. Peter Graves, the scientist who fought it. Beverly Garland, who believed her love stronger than it. Lee Van Cleef, whose brilliant mind was captured by it. Are you really ready to stop loving me? I'll need you even when no emotion exists. For a few dollars, you can, you can hire a woman who'll fit all your fetishes. You'll match your requirements perfectly. Then if you ever get tired of it, you can always run down to the employment agency for another. You'll know terror to freeze your blood. You'll feel the heart-stopping strength of the most fearful monster ever known. You think you're going to make a slave of the world? I'll see you in hell first. It conquered the world. Courtesy of From Parts Unknown, I have a copy of the novel Rencor, Life in Grudge City by Matt Wallace, based on a story by Matt Wallace and Keith J. Rainville. Keith has been on the show in the past. He's the man behind From Parts Unknown over at FromPartsUnknown.net. This is an excellent resource for all things luchador. And you know I love me a good luchador movie. Rencore is a novel set in the world of luchadors. It's a real-world novel. It doesn't deconstruct the luchador or anything like that. It just is a story that takes place in a world in which luchadors fight crime and work with the police. And the laws in the ring are just as binding as the laws of the police. And it's a fantastic novel, a breezy read. I really enjoyed it, and I've got a copy of it here that I want to give away to a lucky listener of Monster Kid Radio. It's real simple to enter. All you got to do is email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com what name you would use if you were a luchador. That's it. It's simple. I'm going to take all the emails at the end of the month. I'm going to put them in my luchador mask, or at least one of them, and then I'm going to ask my wife to join me for a moment, draw a name out of the mask, and that person wins this book, and I'll mail it to you. Let's get this done by the end of the month. So if you're interested in winning a copy of Rencore, Life in Grudge City, email me by the end of September, and then I'll announce the winner the first episode of October. And even if you don't win it, check it out, guys and gals. I really dig it. I read it on my Kindle. It's real affordable that way. Or you can order it through Amazon. It's like $9.95 right now. All right, a couple things coming up for Monster Kid Radio the rest of this month and into the month of October. So first of all, I want to address what's happening with Married with Monsters. My wife and I just haven't had a chance to record another episode, but it is still coming. I had my mom in from out of town, and we just had a lot of things going on, so we hadn't had a chance to sit down to record. But it will happen. I'm still thinking we're going to talk about Stranger Things. I mean, that's... My wife just said yes from the other room. So yeah, we'll talk about Stranger Things on Married with Monsters. Probably coming up, I'd say, within the next... How's three weeks sound to you? 
Brenda says we'll do sooner than that. So we're going to have to rewatch it, which is another, what, eight to ten hours. And then we'll come back and we'll talk about Stranger Things. It'll probably be a longer episode because I want to do it all at once since we've made you wait for so long. The, reco- the, the actual episode, the podcast itself. We won't uh, – see, I, now I'm talking to my wife instead of the listeners, but we're not going to sit down and do one long recording. We'll break it up, but the finished product will be one long. You know what? That's a conversation for me and my wife off mic. That's for us time. You and me, listener, let's, this is our time. So let's talk about what else is coming up on Monster Kid Radio. Craziness. It's October. It's the month of Halloween. It's the most wonderful time of the year. I don't care what the Christmas carols say. This is the month that I live for. It's fall. It's wonderful weather outside. It's cool. It's crisp. Man, it's just a wonderful time of year. I mean, you can already see the Halloween decorations in the stores and Target's knocking it out, man. You know what? I'm going to tell you, I've picked up some of the beautiful or excuse me, bootiful. The butterscotch M&Ms, they're good. They're really, really good. And the cauldron Skittles, mm, spot on. And of course, I've got a box of Frankenberry cereal here already. You know, it's, it's what I do. I'm a monster kid. And my wife hooked me up with that, actually, because she's awesome. Anyway, there are lots of movies happening over the next several weeks. Uh, in fact, this weekend, this Saturday night... You are invited to a very eerie undertaking on Saturday at midnight. That's when Phantasm, the most terrifying movie of all time, will have one special preview. Phantasm, the film that puts the fun in funeral. And as for a fiendish story, it does have a burial plot. Come prepared to scream, because if this one doesn't scare you, you're already dead. Phantasm from Avco Embassy Pictures. Rated R under 17, not admitted without parent or guardian. Phantasm. The original Phantasm is playing, and I know it's a little outside the Monster Kid Radio wheelhouse. You'll be in a movie in the late 70s, but you know what? I love me the Phantasm movies. And the remastered version, the one that was all cleaned up by J.J. Abrams, that's showing at the Hollywood Theater this Saturday night. So I'm going to go see that. Probably not going to talk about it proper on Monster Kid Radio, but I have some other Phantasm plans because Phantasm Ravenger, the fifth and final film in the franchise, that's a lot of Fs, that's coming out here in the near future. And I'm going to see that. And, you know, I referenced my zombie podcasting days when I was talking with Rod earlier. Back then, Scott Morris and I, we did a run of episodes talking about all the Phantasm films. It was a blast. I had a lot of fun doing that. Well, I love podcasting with Scott anyway. I was chatting with Scott off mic uh, earlier today, and he made a comment. Man, it's too bad you're not doing Mail Order Zombie because we had fun doing those Phantasm episodes. You know, it's my podcast, my rules. I'll do what I want. Scott and I, if he's on board because I haven't really cleared it with him, but Scott and I are going to sit down and we're going to talk about Phantasm Ravager when it comes out. So that'll be coming. I'll probably put it out as a special little thing because it's not really Monster Kid Radio, but it'll be on the feed. So stay tuned for that. Uh, other movies that are playing, at least in my area, we've got The Tingler coming up. We've got Theater of Blood coming up. We've got Creature from the Black Lagoon coming up. And the local drive-in movie theater here, the 99W, which is awesome. If you're in the area, check it out. The 99W has been talking with me about maybe bringing in a classic monster movie at the end of drive-in season. Some of the titles that we've bounced back and forth to each other. I don't want to say anything because I don't want to jinx anything. And we are talking to somebody who's got the rights to some movies that have never been released digitally before, but they are classic, iconic monster movies. So fingers and tentacles crossed. 
Speaking of tentacles, the HP Lovecraft Film Festival is happening the second weekend of October. And of course, I'm going to be going. I've been going since 2002. So that makes this year 14 for me at the Lovecraft Film Festival. I'm a guest this year. I don't know what panels I'm going to be on or what I'm doing just yet. That hasn't been announced yet. But as soon as that does get announced, I'll mention it here on Monster Kid Radio. I'll blab about it on Facebook. I'll probably put it on my own website. If you're in the area, I would love to meet you at the Lovecraft Film Festival, at the 99W, at the Joy Cinema, because they've got something coming up. Not set in stone yet, so I don't want to talk about it, but they've got something coming up. I would love to meet you and just do the Halloween Monster Kid thing with you. But if you're not in the area, go do your own Monster Kid thing and let me know all about it here on the show. Give me a call or drop me a voicemail. That's the same thing. Give me a call or shoot me an email. The voicemail phone number is 503-479-5657. It's 503-479-5MKR. Our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Of course, we have a Facebook page and a Facebook group. Just go look for Monster Kid Radio, and both will pop up. Like the page, join the group, get involved with conversations with other listeners of Monster Kid Radio between episodes or even while you listen. All of this is on our website at monsterkidradio.net. We can also find links to every single song that we play here on the show and see what's coming up next week on Monster Kid Radio. Normally. I say that because I haven't decided what's happening next week yet. I'm actually trying to book a couple of recordings this weekend. I have one that's tentative, but again, I don't want to announce it because I don't want to jinx it. I'm really hoping to cover a movie from the 1930s or 40s within the next week or two. I'm also talking with Michael Ludge and Stephen D. Sullivan about doing an episode about werewolves. You know, one of our favorite monsters here on the show. So that'll be fun too. So stay tuned. That's all coming. If you're a user of iTunes, please consider leaving us an honest iTunes review. If you're a Facebook user, please consider sharing the post. If you're a Twitter user, you know, retweet. Just appreciate you spreading the word and supporting Monster Kid Radio. It means a lot to me, guys and gals. It really does. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Los Pecadores versus the Scum of Uranus. That comes from the album Escape from Uranus. You can find them at lospecadores.bandcamp.com. They're a band out of Leeds in the UK. They're awesome. I really enjoy the entire album, and I really enjoy this song. So we're going to play it on our way out. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao. Excitement blows you into a world of madness. Danger engulfs you in a flood of cold fear. And terror catapults you through a galaxy of horrors. This is the Wild, Wild Planet.